Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. In this episode, I speak to Wasim Daher, founder and CEO of Pilot. Pilot specializes in bookkeeping and tax prep for high-growth tech startups, ranging from pre-seed to Series C. Listeners of Product and Radio can get 20% off your first six months of Pilot Core. Just sign up at pilot.com forward slash partner forward slash PH radio. Prior to founding Pilot, Wasim built Zulip. It's a group collaboration tool for businesses that was acquired by Dropbox. So in this episode, I asked him to dive into the details of how he got his company acquired, since so many makers want that exit, and to tell us more about how he launched and scaled up Pilot. Enjoy. App developers spend way too much time testing and troubleshooting their mobile apps for them to be perfect. Those days are now over. Introducing Headspin for mobile. With Headspin's new all-in-one platform, you can now automate testing, monitor performance, and analyze user experience of your apps on real SIM-enabled devices and actual Wi-Fi and carrier networks anywhere in the world. No SDK required. Learn more about the Headspin Global Device Cloud at headspin.io. Wasim, thank you so much for making time to be on the show today. It's really exciting. I'm happy that you're going to be here because your domain expertise, accounting, finance, is something that I am still intimidated by, even though I've been working in tech for so long and I run a side business in addition to my full-time job. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today and talk to us a bit more about why you started Pilot and what your mission is. And then also to tell us a bit more about what you have learned as a founder, because this, of course, is not your first rodeo. Uh, So I'm sure our listeners have a lot to learn from you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me here. The story of Pilot is a very interesting one in that it's not like, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I woke up and I said, oh, I'm super passionate about accounting. We sort of stumbled (laughs) into this accidentally, to be completely honest with you. Very, very much born out of pain we had, as you said, in our previous ventures. And so for us with Pilot, I think this is a very classic case of founders trying to solve the problems that founders themselves have. So in our previous companies, there's all the work that you did to advance the mission of the business. And then there's all this kind of back office administrative work that you have to do just to make the business successful. And in both previous companies, I think we were really, really shocked yeah, at, at how time consuming and painful that stuff was. Incredible. So I would love to rewind a bit and kind of illustrate for the listeners the the origin story. Of course, many uh, of the folks that I've had the privilege to interview on the show have traced it back to something very personal, which sounds like a similar case for you, you know, in your last companies dealing with the headache of accounting and or rather just feeling like it could happen in a much more efficient and much more productive way. I would love to understand, you know, the point at which you kind of thought, okay, I am going to work on this. Because, of course, you were working on other companies before this. So, yeah, if we could just kind of backtrack a bit and then kind of get the get this full story of, you know, Pilot evolving into the company it is today. Absolutely. And the origin story does go very far back to our very first company. It was this company called K-Splice, which we started right out of undergrad. Me and my co-founders were all in school together. And 
we bootstrapped that company. It was based in Boston. We didn't raise any money. And one of the consequences of operating the company that way is we had to be very, very scrappy and very, very frugal. And one of the ways that materialized is we did our own bookkeeping. And in retrospect, actually, that was a huge mistake in that it was not high leverage for us. It was a bad use of our time, et cetera, et cetera. But we did it because, I don't know, we were young and poor and it felt like the thing to do. In doing it ourselves, I think the realization we had was, wow, this is a really, really manual, really mechanical process. It feels like this could be better was sort of insight one. And then insight two was that really led to this company. Insight two was if you look at the trajectory of the back office, a lot of things have improved in the last decade. Like there's Google Apps and Stripe and Gusto and Expensify, like huge parts of the back office that used to be incredibly mechanical, incredibly painful, incredibly manual are now much, much more streamlined, much more pleasant. So the two kind of ideas that came together for us with this company was one, this was a pain we had. It was a pain we thought software could really help improve upon. But the second and very importantly was this idea that no founder has ever said, hey, I'm interested in buying accounting software. What the founder says is, I'm interested in having this problem solved for me so I can focus on my business. And I think that second realization actually did not click for us until we started this company, which is basically early 2017. In looking back on our experiences in the previous companies, we said, well, we think we can do this better. And we actually think uniquely or interestingly that the end-to-end solution actually saying we are going to be your bookkeeper, your finance team, as opposed to we're going to sell you software was the interesting angle that really made the business work. I love that idea of identifying the trend in evolution of backend stuff because now that you mention it, you are so right. Like everything has got easier to a degree, but not this space that you're conquering, which is incredible and makes a lot of sense. So did you literally sort of wrap up with your last startup kind of, and then move on to pilot? And how did you approach building a team and thinking about who had to be with you to tackle this problem and make it happen? Sure. So we had a very, very in some ways, you might say an unfair advantage here, which is so my co-founders and I from this company were my same co-founders from my previous company, were my co-founders from my company before that, and then we were all at undergrad before that together. So I've known them for 15 years, and I've worked with them professionally for a decade. So the previous company we had was acquired by Dropbox. We were there for about two years, very, very interesting place, learned a lot, did a lot, took a little time off after that happening. And then we sort of got in a room back together and said, listen, we're excited to tackle something new. And the guiding principles for me were sort of threefold. And you'll actually find that they don't really tell you that much about what you should be doing. But I tried to say, well, listen, why do I think we want to do another startup? What are the things I'm trying to achieve? And I had three criteria. Criteria one was, I want to work with smart, talented people who challenge me to do my best work every day. And it actually feels like a startup is a very, very good vehicle for assembling that set of people. And then objective or criteria number two was, I wanted to do something where we talk to customers and we describe what we're doing and they say, wow, that's really awesome. Like, I need this. This is really, really good. I'm so glad that you built this. Again, it's again it's sort of a weak constraint. It's basically saying, let's build something that people actually want, not a groundbreaking proposal. And then the third one also feels similarly weak, but I actually do think, excludes a variety of activities, which is I wanted to do something 
that was not societally net negative. And again, very, very weak criteria. But if you if you listen to how Drew kind of internally talked about Dropbox, what he said was, look, let's be real here. We're not curing cancer. But we are making tools that let people collaborate more efficiently. And like maybe that will accelerate the team that is trying to cure cancer or that, you know, it's going to, it has some positive impact on kind of collaboration and productivity in the world. And so for us, I think similarly, we wanted to do something, or at least I wanted to do something that was good and positive. We don't have to be out there feeding starving children or curing cancer, but I wanted to be building something that people wanted that they should want. I love that. I love that idea of enabling the type of progress, positive impact, social impact that you want to create. Because you're absolutely right. At the same time, if your skill set or interest doesn't align with, I don't know, biochemistry or whatever people do to cure cancer, then what can you do to still drive positive change or, you know, to use your words, not do anything which is societally negative. And I think while those three criteria are, are, are relatively simple and not too restrictive, they're also incredibly inspiring. Like who doesn't want to work with smart people all the time that push them to do their best? Who doesn't want to talk to customers about their product and feel the excitement that comes off of them when they discuss it? And then of course, do something which is a net positive as opposed to a net negative. I think all those things are are incredibly inspiring. So now that we have a bit more of a picture of the setup, you know, pilot, you're a couple of years, this is your third startup. How about some like hard truths? Is it easier the third time around? There's a lot. I mean, even the second time, I think there was a lot that we learned from the first time. And then the third time, there was a lot we learned, of course, from the previous two times. Thinking back on our very, very first company, which we started right out of school, I mean, we didn't know anything about anything. We just literally just had no idea about anything related to running a business. And then my co-founders were all like MIT computer science people with me. So we did not exactly have a diversity of like skills either. We sort of all knew how to do the same thing. And we're like, okay, well, let's figure out how to make this happen. And we just had tons of very, very 101 level questions, which we answered by, you know, reading a bunch of stuff on the internet, and leaning very, very heavily, based on anyone who would give us advice. We were sort of fortunate that the like extended MIT network happened to be very good for this. We called in a lot of favors, called up a bunch of people and said, can you tell us about really basic, like, how do I sell a product? Or how should I think about issuing equity to my employees, like that type of stuff. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I think what I, I really like is almost the first thing you said, you know, you you didn't know what you didn't know. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, with entrepreneurship, there are so many unknowns because it's just so different to other stuff that you do. And, you know, particularly in the context in which you entered from academia into the business world, not even as an employee first, but really as a leader, that's pretty intense. So maybe drilling down to things like, you know, developing the first product or, you know, putting together that MVP or what that looks like. What do you feel got better or easier as you were working on pilot in comparison to some of those earlier products you built? I think we just got smarter at being very user and customer focused. I think there's a bias, I think, especially among the kind of technical founder of 
at least my background, where there's a strong temptation to like, let's just get it, like, let's just spend a bunch of time getting it right. And then when it's right, we'll release it into the world and everyone will love it. And like, that sounds very kind of outdated and out of vogue now. But 10 years ago, I don't know that that was like such contrarian advice. In other words, we spent a lot of time, I think, in the first company working on stuff that actually didn't matter because we were not being very, very laser focused or driven by specifically what the customer wanted. We spent a lot of time really kind of polishing and refining stuff internally, I think largely for our own benefit, not because it would help our product in the market. I hear you. Yeah, that's incredible. I guess in a way, maybe it's that idea of um, also becoming more mindful of what you need to do more of versus less of based on where you really see value coming from, from like previous iterations and previous companies, would that be fair to say? Definitely. I mean, I think the thing that's so interesting about, I mean, really any job, but this role in particular is there's no shortage of things to be doing. And the thing that's dangerous is working on the wrong things. Like you're not going to not work. The people that are starting companies are highly motivated to spend time making their ideas succeed. And I don't think the the risk factor is, oh, I just didn't put in the hours. I think the risk factor is we we weren't focusing on the right things. We were doing things that felt like they were work but actually were not particularly helpful to the company. I love it. That's incredible. I also would love to know on a personal level, either how you make decisions or how you work. On reflection, how have you seen that change over the three companies you have led? I think I have a better sense, or at least I try to have a better sense of what I think is actually important. In other words, like one of the things that was really, really interesting about the first company is we worked all the time and it was horrible and it was just this incredible burnout schedule where we worked six days a week, like 12 hours a day, and we all lived in this like kind of crappy little row house in Cambridge. So my co-founders were also my roommates and the employees like all commuted to our chunky little living room. And despite having worked, you know, six days a week or 12 hours a day, Saturday was the day off. And then there were Saturdays, I remember when I felt particularly behind and I'm just like, ah, I really just need to like do a little bit more work on this Saturday so that I can finally get, you know, this one task done. And every time I did that, it was like always a mistake because I was incredibly unproductive. And then I was really sad that I didn't use that time to recharge. And all this to say, I think we were so worried about all of this stuff that we thought represented an existential threat to the company that would kill the company that we really needed to solve immediately. And in practice, literally 0% of those things mattered. Like of all the things I remember are agonizing about in the first company, I don't think any of them had any outcome, you know, any effect on the actual outcome of the business. So I think the biggest thing I try to do now is to say, well, what is actually important? And if it's important and urgent, yeah, I'm going to be here till it's done. But if it's not important and urgent, if I can do it tomorrow, like I should spend time with my friends or my family or sleeping or, you know, eating or reading or doing something that is actually restorative or recharging because look, it's very trite, but I think it is true that it is a marathon. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I think something that's so essential to learning from those experiences, as you've said, is 
being able to reflect on what the outcomes were, you know, when you decided to work 12, 12 hours a day and, and six days a week, that was to reach those goals and hit those milestones. But if you were able to also reach those goals and hit those milestones with a more sustainable way of work and you kind of like almost work your way backwards, you're like, Oh, I could still do that. And I didn't have to do it in such an unhealthy way. (laughs) Would that be a fair reflection? Definitely. And our second company very much was an embodiment of that, where in the second company, we were working hard, but we were working much, much more reasonably and much more sustainably. And I don't think we were less productive in the second company. On the contrary, we were probably more productive because we were happier and we were doing it more reasonably. And actually, you had an interview with DHH. And I thought, I, I think his stuff is, has always very, very much resonated with me about it doesn't have to be miserable. Like, yes, you have to work hard, but it doesn't mean that you have to put in the 80 hour weeks or whatever for your start to succeed. I love that. Yeah, that was um, one of my favorite interviews. It's funny because he's quite a divisive character, uh, but I, I really just ad- admired um, how honest he was. And it's always great, you know, to the point you make to have some narratives from founders about navigating our industry and building successful companies that detract from the same sort of stories that we see in the media. I wanted to kind of get a bit strategic now because it's not so often I get to interview someone with all your incredible credentials. A lot of people in the product hunt community are a fair few steps, you know, before where you are right now. And so I thought it could be great to focus on how you think about startup ideas and market size. You know, you are in this position where you have, you know, had successful exits. You sold your company to Dropbox. You're working on Pilot now, which is huge space, blue ocean kind of uh, area. And so I just thought if there were any maybe like frameworks or tactics that have helped you make decisions about you know, which idea to pursue and and really just like how to kind of get the sense that the market is big enough to make it worth your time. Could you share those with the audience now? Sure, sure. And I think market size is one of these things that's very, very hard for founders to reason about because I think most people don't really have good intuition for how big, big enough is. And I think to even answer that question, you sort of first have to like back up a little bit and sort of ask, well, what are we trying to do with this company? And in particular, are we committing, do we would like to commit to the VC-backed path or are we interested in bootstrapping something? And again, I think there's a very pervasive narrative in Silicon Valley, which is harmful, which is that the VC way is the only way to do it. I actually don't agree with that at all. I think in many ways, the VC way is the unnecessarily difficult or hard way. Like just to, again, to step back a little bit, if your objective is wealth creation. Well, first of all, if your objective is wealth creation, you should not start a startup. You should just like go work on Wall Street or something. It's not that that is easier, but it's the risk reward profile probably has a better shape for you. And then the second question is like, okay, you've decided you're going to build a company. The question is what shape of bet you'd like to take. And a lot of this is implied by the business model and the opportunity in the market that you select. But again, I think the easiest way to, just to do a little silly math here, the easiest way to make $10 million is to own 100% of a company that's worth $10 million. It's not to own 1% of a company that's worth a billion dollars. Like the billion dollar company is much, much harder to build. And it's also much riskier. Again, not a novel idea here, but I think it is important to not let the haters tell you what to do here, that I think lifestyle business is not a bad word. Actually, I have a lot of respectful folks who've built 
like small, profitable, efficient businesses. So all this to say, you only really need to care about how giant the market is if you intend to build one of these large VC backable, eventually public companies. And then, yes, if that's the path you're you're committing to, you do have to make sure the market is big enough. And the vague rule of thumb here is, well, okay, to go public, you probably need about a million, a hundred million dollars of revenue. And so what does that intuitively mean about, well, what are my customers going to pay me? How many customers do I need to get there? What does that imply about my sales motion, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's hard to sort of have an intuitive feel for, well, how, how big is this market? How much are people willing to spend on this particular problem? And that's only aggravated actually by the questions about whether this is a new market opportunity versus an existing market opportunity. Because for an existing market opportunity, you can quantify, you can say, well, this many people buy video conferencing. So I know the global market for video conferencing today is XYZ, and I predict that it will grow in a certain way. But if you're building a brand new thing that doesn't have a spot in the budget, it's extremely hard to say, well, how big is the market for, you know, group chat at work? Well, I don't know, because no one was really doing this. I love how eloquently you stated that it's really important for founders to almost visualize and imagine what the future of their life will look like running that company, because you are right. Market size is something that has entered the narrative because the narrative is so dominated by venture-backed companies and by VCs and by individuals who are incentivized to advocate for this route and, you know, amplify the opportunities that are in this route. But, you know, you mentioned it earlier, risk and reward, you know, realistically, how many companies end up going public and also realistically, how much blood, sweat and tears goes into the journey to get a company to the point where it's turning over a hundred million dollars every year. And um, the reality is that often our ambition or dream is actually like quite far removed from what we truly would be willing to put into the game by like, you know, our actual skin in the game. Not everyone wants to give up you know, the other things they could do, the opportunity cost of spending 12, 16 hours a day working. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, I do think that's an incredibly helpful reminder. And yeah, exactly like you said, you know, why is this idea of lifestyle business so often looked upon negatively? If you're building a sustainable business that makes sense for you and is keeping your customers happy and is solving a real problem, you know, I mean, I feel like that's success. <laughs> I, I definitely agree. And I think it it has the potential to be just as lucrative for many folks as well. Like this is, this is not a friend of mine, but a person I'm sort of loosely connected with has a small like SaaS software company and it generates a couple million dollars a year in revenue and their expenses are extremely minimal. They have like a couple of contractors internationally or something. And, you know, this person's taking home a million dollars plus every single year. And you know, I suspect he's super happy with that outcome. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't want billionaire problems. Millionaire problems, I can deal with. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I love that. So are there any other reflections you can share on for makers who are maybe like weighing up whether to get venture or keep bootstrapping, given all of the experiences you've had with your companies? 
just to like maybe like put a bit more focus on it, like one, just anything that you haven't yet mentioned that you'd like to say around, you know, weighing up this decision. And then also maybe reflecting on uh, when it might be right to look for outside capital, even if you have been successfully bootstrapping, if you have any thoughts around that. Because I see that as a question that comes up more and more on social media where people are like, I guess I'm doing okay, but there are other things I want to do that maybe outside funding could help us do. Uh, But yeah, just curious to hear your thoughts. Right. So I think the biggest criteria then, again, is sort of this market size one, which is I think venture capital is not right for 99% of businesses. And you sort of have to be building something that is targeting, you know, some gigantic market where to have a company worth billions of dollars, you do need to be doing hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. And so the question is, well, is the business is the market big enough to actually sustain that? If so, maybe this is something we should explore. And what is the benefit of raising some external money? Well, ultimately, you can sort of operate the business towards growth, or you can operate the business towards profitability. And if you don't have external cash, you sort of have to operate the business towards profitability for it to continue existing. The advantage of taking a bunch of money from investors is you're allowed to run a deficit, you're allowed to make those investments in growing instead of trying to make the business profitable. And you do that under the theory that ultimately that leads to something even bigger and even more valuable that by growing faster, you're able to capture more value. And so I think if that is the shape of the business, then sure, I think it's very reasonable to take a look and say, well, what are my options from a venture perspective? What will this allow me to do that I can't do today? And do I think that that is net beneficial for the outcome of the company, given the costs and the encumbrances of actually raising money? I love that. I feel like you should write a book. Have you written a book yet? You need to. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No, I have not. No. Or you could start doing some of those like Naval-esque uh, philosophical tweets where you just turn these little gems into, you know, a few characters that get retweeted and liked by all the aspiring makers around the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I were as smart as Naval. I have a lot of respect for him. Um, incredible. So um, I thought it might be fun to switch gears a bit and talk about exits and selling startups. This is something that... If I'm honest, I feel people are never quite transparent about, and I totally understand that there are certain situations where, you know, it's a legal agreement to not disclose. Um, but I do get frustrated by it because for so many people, you know, uh, an, an exit is, is a goal. I know it shouldn't necessarily be a goal, but you know, we all have different priorities. We all have different needs. We come from different backgrounds, and the idea of kind of really cashing out is almost essential for some makers, you know, they have taken this risk because they need that reward. They've got a community behind them that's going to, you know, make use of that fund. So um, I just wondered if you could share some learnings that you have gathered about how to think about selling your startup, particularly because there are probably some folks out there that, you know, will get this opportunity one time and don't want to walk into it blindly and want to make sure they are thinking about the right things and asking the right questions when they weigh up the decision. Sure. So here is how I would approach this question. And it actually, again, it, it goes back a lot to, well, how has the business been financed historically? You close certain doors by raising a bunch of institutional money that prevent you from taking exits that might otherwise be, you know, very good or very profitable or might make you very happy individually had you not raised a bunch of money. So that's sort of one thing to keep in mind, which is there are constraints that are imposed by taking on external investors. But broadly, here's sort of how 
I thought about this or how we have thought about this. And we've now done this twice. So we had this first company called Casebleice that Oracle acquired. And then we had a company called Zulip that Dropbox acquired. And my kind of joking answer is, first of all, don't sell your company. Um, and the, the reason I say that is like, actually, it's very, very important to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Because the reality of selling your startup is that you're selling your baby and you're losing control and you're going from being a founder to just a person at the company. And that can actually be really, really hard. And I have a sort of sidebar on this, which is like my theory on kind of what motivates people to do stuff is every job has things you like doing and things you don't like doing. And it's very easy to motivate yourself to do the things you like doing because definitionally you like doing them. They're fun. For me, the thing that motivated me to do unpleasant stuff is two things. One is I know the team is depending on me to do it. Or the second is I have clear visibility or line of sight to, well, I need to do unpleasant thing X because it will allow the company to do thing Y, which I think will further our chances of success. And I think as a founder or as an employee of a small startup, you have very, very clear visibility into those things. Whereas I think when you're now at the acquirer, you don't. And the challenge, again, is not motivating yourself to do the fun stuff. It's motivating yourself to do the unpleasant stuff. So I think one of the things that definitely founders should grapple with is like, this is going to change the way that you and your team work. Are you happy with that? Um, is, is sort of piece one to consider. And then the second, and it's related, is like, I would not overfit or overfixate on the total offer value which is the things I would consider are whether this is a good home and good outcome for you and your team, and then where you actually want to work because that will actually cause you to capture more value. Like any of these relationships generally are structured as, okay, you get some money and then you get some money in stock and it vests over you know some number of years, generally four. And if there's a company A that is offering you amount X and company B that's offering you amount Y, even if amount Y is greater than amount X, if you're going to stay longer at company A, you will actually capture more value. So I think thinking about acquisition not as the end state of the relationship, but actually the very beginning is really, really important. I love that. Then the third is just companies are bought. They're not sold. So relatedly, in my experience, you need two deals to make one deal. Like you need two people that are interested to create a situation that has enough kind of leverage and momentum to cause something to happen. Can you maybe illustrate that a bit more, maybe using your company as an example or something else, like this idea of it's not bought, it's bought, but not sold. We sold this first company to Oracle and like what caused that to happen? It's not that we proactively kind of got in front of them and said, hey, we exist, come buy us they somehow sort of through the churnings of the internal gears at Oracle at some point woke up one day and were like, yeah, let's buy this company. And they reached out to us and they said, hey, we're interested in learning more about your tech, et cetera, et cetera. And one note on this too is the whole job of people that work in corporate development is to have these conversations. So just because someone calls you up and says, oh, I'm at Google or whatever, and we're maybe interested in buying your company, like that's 25 steps away from anything even resembling the basic outline of a deal. So like, don't get too excited by that because their job, it's not to waste your time, but their job is to have as many of those conversations as they can just to see if there might be something there. But my point here is like, I think it's actually hard to go and shop your company. There needs to be someone at 
the acquirer's side who wants what you've built, whether it's the tech or the team or the customer base. And it's hard to kind of like force that. They need to be interested. You can't make them fall in love with you, basically. I love that. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And understanding the dynamics and then also with the context that you share and then the different examples and the different variables, understanding that, you know, not all offers are created equal. And it's really a very personal decision about how one envisions their ideal working future that will help them decide which which offer makes the most sense. I wanted to switch gears a bit um, and talk a bit about your life on a more kind of personal and productivity level. One of the conversations that we never get sick of in the Product Hunt community, particularly in ProductHunt.com slash makers, is how to be productive. We're living in an increasingly busy world, so many different demands on our attention, and we have limited time. We're all time poor. And makers in particular face that ever-growing to-do list <laughs> and, a, and a real-time constraint. So I would love to hear from you, maybe just on a high level, some strategies you are very loyal to in your life in order to stay productive. Sure. And I feel like I'm not as good at this as I would like to be. Like, There's always very, very much room for improvement. I've been a big like inbox zero person for a very, very long time. I'm like addicted to archiving emails and Gmail. I would say that. And then I think my to-do list for a long time now has lived out of Asana. I think just being very aggressive about trying to prune and to work very efficiently through like keeping kind of the inbox and the to-do list tight has been really, really big for me. Touching on, uh, you mentioned Asana as a tool there. Is that something that you use across pilot? Like, do you try to have like a unified system where you are tracking actions or what does project management look like within the company? Yeah, I think this will be a little bit disappointing for the Asana team as I just use it as my own personal to-do list. I'm just like, what are the things I think I might want to do this week? And I will take a little time at the beginning of the week or at the beginning of at the end of each day to look ahead to well what are the things that previous Wasim thought current Wasim might want to do today and then I'll shuffle that a little bit to say well no actually I can only do three things today these are the ones I think are my top three let me push the other ones down let me decide I'm not going to do them <laughs> incredible right so so you're very you're very dynamic in how you do that and manage that I love that another thing I wanted to ask you was as a leader and particularly as a leader now working on your third company how do you invest in your leadership skills? And how do you think about your personal development? Of course, you are managing teams, but I'm sure you're also thinking about how you can continue adding more value going forward by investing in yourself. So it'd be interesting to hear how you approach that. I would say that I lean very heavily on other people in my network. So actually, I've learned a ton from my co-founders, uh, Jessica in particular, we have a bunch of very, very seasoned managers here at Pilot as well that I've learned a ton from. I think for me, it has always been about just recognizing that you always have a lot to learn and that there are other super smart people here that can teach you. And that's sort of the whole, again, that was the whole thesis of starting this company is like you want to be surrounded by smart, talented people who are going to help you do your best work every day. So I lean very, very heavily on other folks here, on our advisors, on our board members. I mean, I read a fair bit about this stuff, but I think my favorite stuff has always been kind of war stories from folks that have done it before. 
<laughs> I love that idea of focusing on war stories. Are you are you someone who likes stoicism and preparing for the worst case scenario? Actually, no. It's there's a very nice balance here where I'm very very much an optimist, perhaps overly so. And then my other co-founder Jeff is like a strong pessimist, and that works really really well. Oh, amazing! So yeah, you are the the perfect balance of the two the two energies. Yeah, I would say there's a it's. That has been a very healthy dynamic because I think he is constantly looking around corners thinking about the worst case. I'm probably sort of in a little fantasy land thinking about the best case. And then Jessica, our third co-founder, is really kind of a sober grounding that's very tied to the reality of things. Incredible. I love that. So just kind of digging into that a bit deeper, just because I would love for folks to be able to think of how they could apply, um, you know, leveraging your network and gathering war stories into their own lives. Is this a case of you kind of just like connecting with mentors and maybe like presenting a challenge or a problem and trying to understand how better to navigate it? Or are you literally just asking folks to reflect on their own journeys and then just taking the learnings from when things went wrong in in their histories? I find it's easiest when you have a specific prompt. And it's easiest for everyone because the things you will learn are not theoretical. Like you're ready to put them into practice immediately. And so you're ready to receive them as opposed to it being, oh, well, in the abstract, if someday I encounter this situation, here's how I might think about it. Yes, that is so helpful. Um, really, really great advice. And I think, um, tell me if you agree with this, but formulating an effective ask is almost an art or maybe saying it's an art is not good because I feel like folks need to practice it to get better. But um, whatever you call it, it's definitely something that isn't easy and needs to be worked on. And I feel that to get the most out of asking folks in your network for advice, you have to really be super specific about exactly what it is that you're struggling with and exactly what that person can do to help. Would you agree with that? I 100% agree. And I actually, I try to apply that both sort of in asking for advice, but even more tactically in the art of writing an email. Like my thought on writing an email is like, look, the person you're writing to is busy. They have a bunch of other stuff they're doing. How do you craft something that is really short, that is to the point, and that has a very crisp and clear, explicit call to action at the end of the email? And then ideally, the call to action is as easy to respond to as possible. Like, if you need them to do something for you, ideally, they just respond yes, and the thing you wanted to occur, like, would occur. So if I'm trying to meet with you, I'll say, hey, you know, I'd really love together because I want to talk about these three things with you. How is Monday the 19th at 2 p.m. at blah, blah restaurant? And then you can just write back, yes, works for me, and then it's done. We don't have to kind of go back a bunch of times getting this stuff squared out. Yes. I really hear you on that because I am someone that will reread and reread an email draft multiple times, especially if it's to someone external. I will like think of what word I can take out, what punctuation I can change. For me, it's really about trying to be as succinct as possible. And I think because I spend so much time empathizing with the recipient of my emails and being conscious of their time and the opportunity cost when they are reading my email, I get really upset when someone sends me an email, which is like 300 words in a single paragraph. And I just kind of go, oh, why, why? (laughs) More evidence to folks who are still reluctant to write 
succinct and clear emails. Because the truth is when I then get those block text emails, I don't really read them. <laughs> I just think, well, if they really... Right. They're tempting to yeah, avoid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, see, so we've come to my favorite part of the podcast, being the product hunt community. We have to ask for product recommendations because we love products. This could be something that you and the pilot team rely on to get your work done or an app that never leaves your home screen or something you just bought for the home. Uh, but yeah, it would be great to hear about a product that you love right now. Sure. I have like a kind of Luddite answer for you on home screen stuff, which is, and I can't believe I'm like now one of these people. I did this thing where I put all of my apps into one folder called extra. I actually have two folders, extra one and extra two. And then I like hid them on like page five. So when I open up my phone, there's literally one app there. It's camera. And then if I swipe over to the next tab, it's like a Gmail, Chrome, clock, weather, messages, messenger, you know, live chat, photos, wallet, maps, and everything else I have to search for to get. And the motivation on that is like, I don't want to accidentally be doing stuff. Like if I open my phone, I want to open it with intention. That's like, I am trying to find this person's email or I would like to read the New York times or whatever it is, but creating a little bit of a barrier to say, what is the thing I'm trying to do with my time here? How do I make sure I'm not getting distracted by some other thing? And, and then there's a, like there are a handful of Chrome extensions that kind of do this too. Like leech block is one. And there's leech block. Tell me more. It just like will stop you from wasting time on Reddit and stuff. You can set time limits for websites. And I actually, it seems like, you know, ideally I would be a person who doesn't require this. But as it turns out, I very, very much am a person where I'm like, I will just get sucked into this stuff. Actually, the one I use is called Stay Focused. I am taking notes. <laughs> I need this for Twitter. It's difficult because I just, I'm always sucked back into the loop. I mean, it, I use it a lot for my job, but having that as an excuse also means I'm definitely spending like disproportionate amounts of time on it than other platforms I also use for my job. Um, so yeah, I'm going to give stay focused a try. And, and then screen time on the, like the screen time setting in oh, iOS. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Screen time is great. I now need another feature that stops me from snoozing and ignoring my screen time notifications when it says my time's running out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wish that you could turn off that button. Uh, My two requests for the folks at Apple are to let me disable that button and to adjust the snooze duration. That would be so good. Um, Or just shut it down. Shut it down and lock it. Fine. Like I want to proactively opt into continuing to use the thing. And so actually a lot of the stuff I've built in my own personal workflow is like, is this really what I want to be doing with my time? If so, cool. Like, sure, let's read that article. But I want to proactively decide. Agreed. Yes. Not just like passively keep going through a chain that has sort of hardwired my brain into, you know, continuing on the path of least friction, which is to keep scrolling. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Well, Wasim, I feel like I could have you on here all day. Still think you should write a book. At the very least, create some kind of Twitter thread because I have learned a lot. I'm looking at pages and pages of notes here and thinking this is going to be an incredible episode. So for folks who are listening and now go, oh my gosh, I need to have Pilot in my business because this guy's a genius and that product's going to save me time. Where should they go? Pilot.com. 
Well, that was easy enough. Are you active on social media? Can folks follow you or find you anywhere? Yeah, I'm at Wasim on Twitter. My Twitter needs a little bit more love. And then Pilot is at Pilot HQ on Twitter. Incredible. Thanks so much for your time today. Yes, thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.